0: Well, we are um, in the midst of a, our series um, on sexuality. Most of you know this, but if you're visiting, <laughs> uh, and I was supposed to—if you're following along in the outline that I've provided—this um, week I was supposed to deal with the question of male and God creating in us male and female. But actually, as it reflected, it's actually more important for us to discuss first this question of the body <clears throat> and the meaning of the body. But before we uh, get dive in, I I want to read uh, really the entirety of Genesis chapter two, out of which I'll be preaching this morning. So hear God's word to us from Genesis chapter two, verse starting in verse four, going through verse twenty five. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Habilah, where there is gold, and the gold that the land is is good. Dillium, and onyx stoner there. The name of the second river is the Gohan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to eat, to work it, and to keep it. And the Lord God made, commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help, helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the Lord said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Be to God. O Father, we ask that you meet us this morning in this ancient story, in this ancient truths in this story. Wherever we find ourselves in relationship to the Christian faith, in the person of Jesus Christ, we help us to know, God, that you are, you are our creator, God, and you created us good. You love us. You're always moving towards us, not away from us. And so help us to hear your voice this morning, speaking to us, just as you spoke with Adam in the garden. Help us to know you're moving towards us and not away from us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what, what is the meaning of your body? What is the meaning of your body? I know this is an odd question. It's sort of like, you know, if you're outside and you're looking at an oak tree and you're like, what is the meaning of that oak tree? If somebody were to ask you that question, you'd be like, what do you mean, what is its meaning? I mean, what is it? It's an oak tree. What does it do? Well, it flowers and lets acorns down and it grows again. You could ask about its meaning in the ecosystem, right? As processing nitrogen and carbon dioxide or all these different things within the system. But, you know, to ask the question of what does it mean? It's like our bodies. We sort of just take our bodies for granted. What is the meaning of our body? Well, it's what I need to keep living. In our culture, I think it's very hard for us to draw the body into focus and to reflect on it as having meaning. I mean, it is, right? I mean, the body, in a way, doesn't want to be reflected on unless, of course, it's broken. But us reflecting on the meaning of the body, the deeper significance of the body, is actually, as I've found, the body is the most concrete thing we have. And yet, as I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking, wow, this could get really abstract really quickly. And I'm going to try not to do that. And there's something about the body that always sort of, it's a sort of background of our lives, at least when it's healthy. It's the background, it's the horizon. But why is this question of the body so important, especially in a series on human sexuality? And it's this. is Every understanding of sexuality assumes an understanding of the body. Every understanding of sexuality assumes an understanding of the body, that the body means a certain thing. And if you're going to understand the biblical understanding of human sexuality, you have to understand the biblical understanding of what it means to have a body, And so there's two two truths I want us to wrestle with and and explore this morning. And the first one is this. You are your body. Your body is the real you. Your body is the real you. And the second one is this. Your body is built for relationship. So your body is a real you, and your body is built for relationship. What is it that makes me a body, or a person, right? What is it? What is the thing that's most true about me? Um, I think we, with respect to our bodies, I think this is a really hard question to answer. Um, we're not prone to think about our bodies as the real us, the real me. Um, we have a very sort of complex relationship to our bodies. I was thinking of the movie Avatar from 2009 by James Cameron. Uh, many of you probably saw the movie. There's another one coming out in a couple of years. Uh, but the very premise of the movie sort of illustrates the way in which we don't tend to think about our bodies as the real us. And it's a story of, you know, this, this planet Pandora, which is filled with these ali- or, you know, sort of alternative intelligent life form um, called Navi. And, of course, uh, sort of a military-industrial complex slash capitalist go to try to sort of take all of the, you know... Uh, you know, mining and operations. But the thing about the planet is no human can sort of breathe on the planet. It's uh, only the, the, the sort of uh, the inhabitants of the planet can breathe. So they have to actually wear special masks in order to, uh, you know, oxygen tanks to, to do this. But, but what they've done is they figured out a way that, um, that you can have a human being inhabit one of these Navi bodies, right? And so that's the whole premise of the movie where you have this man named Jake who's this disabled marine veteran, and he he inhabits this simulated body and so he can just sort of explore the world and the and the incredible thing is is so he as he does this right he he ends up you know embracing the culture and this tribe of alien people he actually falls in love even though his real body is actually in a trailer in this sort of contraption almost like you know he's he's sort of like a you know a video game of sorts now and at the, end of the, at the end of the movie, actually, his body, by the sort of mystical forces of the planet, are actually transfer him, his soul, into this Navi body. So that, you know, at the end of the day, he just his, his sort of human body is sort of cast aside, and yet he still lives in this other body. See, that's, that's a view of the body that the body is like a container. A container for my true self, my soul, my, whatever you might want to call it. Sort of like Tupperware. Like I have Tupperware that has held a lot of different things, right? And the point of the Tupperware is not the plastic or whatever it's on, but it's what's inside of it. Various soups. <laughs> or... So, I had a philosophy professor that once said to me, and this is a direct quote, and this is in 1997. She said, I wish I could meld my consciousness with the internet. And um, this is 1997, so the very beginnings. And uh, it's remarkable that at the very end of the semester, like classes were done, I remember her and I had a conversation um, sitting outside a student union where she proceeded to tell me about just her broken life and all these broken relationships. And it put in perspective that comment about how she wishes that she could meld her, her consciousness with the internet. Um, because in a way, life in the body is very disappointing. Right? I mean, life in the body can be very disappointing. And life in the body is very limiting. You can only do so much. And the allure of virtual reality, of course, is that you can live beyond your body. Your body isn't... You're not limited by what you can do and what you can know or where you can be, in a sense. You can, in a sense, escape your body, its brokenness or its disappointment. Because the fact of the matter is that oftentimes life in the body is quite mundane and boring. But the virtual reality realities of the body can be pretty exciting. But when you look at the Bible, and you look at reality even, (laughs) bodies are what make us real. Bodies, I mean, the fact, bodies are a fact, right? Your body is a fact about you. You have certain hair color, you have certain genetic sort of makeup, a certain timber in your voice. Your body is a fact about you. It is the real you. Pain, thirst, sexual arousal, death. These are all things that happen to your body and none of us can escape them. And these realities define us. And so life in the body is where life is most real and most thunderous in our experiences, right? I want to draw your attention to verse 7 of our text. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust... From the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now I want to draw your attention to this. When God created the first man, when he created Adam, he does didn't take a soul, pluck it, and then cover it in flesh, right? He didn't have this pre-existing soul that he then put flesh on. No, he takes from the ground the dust of the earth and he blows into it the breath of life and so it's the body right that god creates the essence of who you are is your body you don't simply have a body you are a body it's not as if you can separate yourself from, i mean if you do, if you die, if your body dies you do not exist you are no longer real there is no such thing as life outside the body, and here I need to offer a corrective within the Christian tradition because we often talk in terms of our souls. Like, what's the truest thing? Is our soul, and this is this eternal thing? But the, friends, the Bible talks about souls, but there's no—you will find nowhere in the Bible a soul, a disembodied soul without a body. There's no. See, we're besold bodies. We're besold bodies. And and in soul bodies, right? Like there's a sense of there's an inseparability of the human soul from the human body. You can't pull them apart. Think about some of the texts we read this morning from Romans eight. What does it say? Where Paul says we all groan. The creation is groaning for adoption as sons and daughters. The redemption of our souls? No, bodies. What is what is Easter about? Is Easter about the resurrection of souls? No, it's about the resurrection of bodies. See, even when we think about Easter, for us as sort of modern Christians, we have a hard time, you know, we, we, we love Easter and, and the reality of the resurrection when people around us are dying or when we feel death. We're like, I have hope after death. But we, we have a hard time connecting Easter to the, our ordinary lives because I'm alive. Well, I don't really need resurrection until I die, right? Because there's a sense that the body is really not important and central to who I am, And who we are as human beings. And the soul, of course, is important. right? Soul, in scripture, is a way of saying that you are your body, but you are more than your body, in a sense. You are transcendent. You have this relationship to God. And it's not as if, you know, the language of the soul is important for keeping us becoming sort of scientific materialists and reductionistic in the way we think about human persons. And so, for instance, science can tell you, um, neurobiologists can tell you about your there's these different chemical reactions are happening when you touch and you love and you feel all this meaning and emotion and they say, well, these are serotonin levels or whatever. See the, so the, the reality of the soul is to say that, yes, those are serotonin levels, there are chemical reactions going on when we experience love and meaning in life, but that's not all it is. There's something more there, too, that's actually spiritual. That's why the soul is important. But, okay, so if, if we are our bodies, if my body is the real me and the real you, what does this mean about having a body? Um, and there's, there's three... There, well, the, <clears throat> let's draw out and reflect on some, conclu- some sort of consequences of this understanding. One is this. Is your body is a gift. Your body is a gift. Well, think about the imagery there that God... Before God is creating the world, he's, he's just speaking. He says, let it be, and it happens. Let it be, and it happens. But human beings... God gets dirty, right? He gets his hands dirty, and he forms. Right? You, there's a sense that the Creator, when he's creating human beings, actually steps back. It gets much more intimate. He's forming. It's like a potter forming clay, and he's breathing in the breath of, life. he puts his mouth, in a sense, to like this is like mouth to mouth resuscitation. God blows in the man the breath of life. What a beautiful picture of God's care and love for our bodies, for us as human beings from the psalm that was read during our sacred reading, Psalm 139, For you have formed my inward parts, you have knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you, for when I was being made in secret, intricately interwoven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In the book of Job, perhaps a verse you, you don't know, Job says, your hands fashioned and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love. And your care has preserved my spirit. Isaiah twice talks about how God relates to Israel because God formed Israel in the womb. Friends, no matter how much you might dislike your body, <laughs> and there's a lot to dislike about our bodies. We live in a fallen world. Your body is a gift, and it is a handcrafted gift of God, which means that you're not an accident. You are not an accident. You're, in the grand scheme of the cosmos, it's, it's not as if you just happened to show up accidentally, and here you are. No, you're not an accident. In the cosmos, you're not an accident, even if your parents didn't intend you to come around, even if your parents didn't want you to exist. You are not an accident, because what is God is the one knitting you together, which is a glorious and precious truth, that you're, God takes care to shape us. But one of the truths that corollaries, in a sense, that's connected to this is this idea, the next idea, which is this, is that your body, as a gift, as something created by God, given to you, actually doesn't belong to you. See, if God created you, if he's the potter in a sense, you don't have ownership of your body in the sense that I can do whatever I want to do, as if I'm a world or body unto myself. Your body belongs to God. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians a number of times. Your body belongs to God. It's his body. And this means that God then has authority over our bodies, right? Because this is the question in our culture. Like, who... What right do you have to tell me what to do with my body, right? And this is just every, all the issues, right? Deal with this. Well, the right is that God created your body as a gift. And his commands are actually not for our harm or they're not arbitrary, but they're because God loves your body and he gave his law and commands to protect your body and preserve it in its beauty and goodness, the sexual revolution, as I mentioned um, earlier, has a view of the body that is very different from the biblical view of the body, and it is a very, very low view of the body. It is an understanding of the body that the body at the end of the day does not matter. The body is like Tupperware for you to do and manipulate as you want, to put in it what you want. Now, this is, you know, I won't go, (laughs) there's an ancient heresy called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism was the belief that it kind of it had this dualistic world. In other words, there's, there's the evil forces and those are associated with matter and created reality and then there's the good spiritual forces and that's spirit and soul and they're always in conflict with one another. And the ancient Gnostics <clears throat> had a, 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 such a low view of the body such that you, on the one hand, you had people like, it doesn't matter what you do in your body, right? Because it doesn't matter for who you are. What's true is the inner you, the inner soul that's not connected to the body. And in our culture, I think we have, we're deeply Gnostic culture. We're suspicious of bodies. We don't know how to relate to our bodies. We denigrate. And this happens in conservative um, sort of circles as well. Many conservative Christians, sort of this is the kind of anti-body, you know, like sex is bad or created reality is bad. What's good is a spiritual and what's is a soul. But you also have a kind of libertine version of this, right? That's represented in a hookup culture in America or pornography where it's just like, you know, sex is something to consume. It's like food. Um, It doesn't really matter what I do with my body or what I do to other bodies. It has no impact. The real me is the me that's inside. And it's be who you are, right? That's the creed of our culture you have to be who you are. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. Don't even let your body tell you who you are. I mean, that, that's the creed of our culture. Your body is like a blank canvas for you to express yourself and express yourself in the world. Now, I mean, this is not really a coherent... I mean, it's just not coherent. It breaks down all over the place. So I, I don't, I don't want to really even spend time critiquing that idea, but... What I do want to draw to, to draw this point to a close is this, is that sex is real because bodies are real. right? Sex matters. Sexuality matters because our bodies matter. Uh, a quote from this woman, uh, Beth Fulkerson-Jones. There's a quote in the beginning, but she says, Sex matters because it is real. Sex is not incidental, something that we shake off as though it doesn't touch the core of our existence. Sex matters because embodiment goes to the heart of what it means to be human. Embodiment goes to the heart of what it means to be human. And so if, you, if your body is the real you, what you do with your body touches the real you. One last thing we learn from this, this story or of God's creating here is this idea that the body is sacred. The body is sacred. It's a gift it belongs to God, and it's sacred. Now think about the imagery here. God blows. And the word "blow or breath" is the word "ruach," which is spirit. So God in spirits, right? God's, God's very spirit as the Creator is blown into the human being, the dust, and animates it. See, this is the first picture we get of the human body as a temple. And Paul will work with this in 1 Corinthians six. He says, "Your body is a temple." Your body is a temple. God dwells in your body. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now, here's the interesting thing. If your body is a temple, what what do you do? What's the purpose of a temple? Why do we have temples, or at least in ancient cultures? Why? A temple is a place you go to connect with God, right? A temple is a place where you connect with God. So in other words, the body itself is a place where we connect with God. We don't go outside of our bodies to connect with God. God dwells in us. And this brings us to the, the second point I wanted to make. Because the body is a point of connection. It's a connection with God, but it's a connection with the world and the rest of creation. It's a place of intersection and interconnection. Your body is built for relationship. Your body is built for relationship. I want to draw your attention back to verse 7. What did God create with? What is the material that God creates with? It says the dust of the ground. Which is an interesting phrase. Because you, know, you have this imagery of God as a potter. right? And of course, the, it's not the word clay. It's dust. And it's interesting to reflect on what's the significance and meaning that the writer uses dust instead of clay because clay would seem to be the, the better choice. But what's interesting is when you look at this word dust throughout the Old Testament, what does dust mean? It's, I mean, how do you create with dust? It's just like, you know. But the significance is this, is that dust points to our mortality. Right? Dust points to our mortality. So here you actually, even human beings before the fall, in a sense, are already mortal. <laughs> there, there's a, and, and part of that, too, is that from the ground, right? So as human beings, we are created in the image of God, and we have authority over creation. So we have a distinct relationship over creation, and yet we are still part of creation. See, our nature and being, right? And we all know this, scientifically speaking, right? Like, everything, I'm a carbon-based creature, and when I die, it'll rot, right? I'll go back into the grave. I mean, everything in my body can be found in other bodies, Within the created order, right? That's part of the whole point. I'm from the ground and actually sharing the mortality of the rest of the creation. I'm not, uh, and, and I always think of the, you know, you're, you're the, you, as a human being exalted over creation, you, 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 we're sort of in this weird in-between space. And yet, we share the mortality of the rest of creation. And, and, and you might go, why? what's the point of this? See, as human beings, we don't have alien sort of flesh that's somehow qualitatively distinct from creation. Because if we did, it'd be like, you know, like a superhero, like Superman, who comes from another planet, and he has flesh that is different, right? He can't be killed, or at least not easily. But the other thing about Superman is that he he can't enter into relationships with the rest of the human race and the created order in quite the same way right that's always complicated see here's the point as human beings we share the dust of the earth we're of the ground we share that mortality which means we are open we are open to creation and we're open to its mortality we are vulnerable to it we we don't set over top of it in a way you know impervious to its realities and we know this right we are porous in a sense as human beings in the created order. Uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor, in his book, The Secular Age, he's tracking um, the shift to uh, what he calls the secular in history. And he, he, one of the things he talks about is a shift in understanding of the body. And it's very, very pre- perceptive. And he says there's the ancient world, and really, and this represents the biblical world, the self was porous. But in the modern world, the self becomes what he calls a buffered self or a bounded self. The porous self? The porous self, again, think of that word, think of a sponge. Right? And you have openings and water can come in and come out. See, the human body is like a sponge. It's like a porous sponge. It's open to receiving all kinds of realities. And we know this just from a medical perspective. I mean, I'm sick, right? I don't know where I picked up whatever virus I have, but You know, it just comes because my body is open. There's all Our bodies are open. I mean, not to get too crass, but we have all kinds of openings in our body from which things can enter into us from the outside and leave us as well, right? And we, we think sometimes too narrowly and think that that's just true of my body in a biological sense. But friends, it's true in a spiritual, moral sense as well. The body is a place of permeability, of porousness, your very presence and interaction with each other impacts you in ways you can't imagine. See, the human body is like a microcosm, and if you if you were to study 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about all kinds of different resurrection bodies, this is the thing that comes out: is the, the human body is like a microcosm. It's a little mini universe. It's like the intersection there, at Brady and Farwell. You think about all the traffic. You know, you have five different thoroughfares. You've got people walking across. There's so many things going on. It's like a center, and your body is the same way. Your body sits at the center of all these intersections, all these things that come and go. Think about and I read the whole chapter because I wanted you to see that where is Adam as a body? He's in Eden, it's a place. Your body is defined by place. If you grew up in Milwaukee, you have things about Milwaukee that define your body and your sense of yourself as place, your gender. Your bodies are gendered. We'll talk about that next week. Food, right? Your body needs food, and the kinds of food you eat impacts your health, but it actually defines your culture and your sense of self. There's creatures that come to Adam, and Adam interacts with them. See, the body is this interconnected thing in creation. It's built for relationship. Your body is how you receive the world and how you give yourself to the world. Our bodies have all kinds of openings. They're porous to the world. They're not buffered and closed off. Your body is built for relation, not isolation. Your body is built for relation, not isolation. But there's an even deeper sense in which our bodies are built for relationship. And that's what we see with the story of the creation of the woman. It's interesting that God allows Adam, he creates Adam first, and he makes Adam, in a sense, feel his solitude God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. But after God says that, he doesn't actually just create the woman. He brings all of these animals to Adam for him to, in a sense, feel his solitude. See, there's no body for Adam, right? There's no body, literally. There's no body that's like his body that he, he in a sense, can relate to and think, that, that's like me or I can relate, right? and then he creates a woman i want to read this to you again so the lord god caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept took one of the ribs the rib is just it's like a side the, the word actually has a more sense of a side like a side of beef almost. think of that's the imagery you should have don't think of like you plucked out a rib you know i don't know. Um, it's it's like a side right so so adam or god removes like the side of adam to create the woman and God took the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man and <clears throat> made, into a, made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the, Lord God, and then the man said, Ha! And this is the first poetry in the Bible, right? This is the first poem. First poem in human history. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, what you, I want you to see here is that relationality, relationship between human beings is built into the very structure of our bodies, right? It's not incidental, it's not an afterthought, it's actually part of your very structure as a human being to be created for relationships, communion, intimacy, Now, the consequences of this are massive. And I'm not going to spell them out right now. We'll take the rest of the year to do that, honestly. But there's two things I want to draw your to. Two sort of principles, if you will. Reflections on this idea of the human... That my body, your body, is built for a relationship. And the first one is this. Has to do with intimacy. The more physical, in a sense... The more physically close you become with another person... The closer you move to that person's real self. you follow? See, see, the more intimate, right? and thinking here of sexuality, but not exclusively, the, the more intimate you become with another person physically, the more you travel to the heart of who that person is, to the essence of who they are, and, and you yourself. See, we we tend to think of the body, well, you know, what we do with our bodies is not the real me, right? And yet, the real you is your body. And so the more exposed, the more vulnerable, the more open you are with your body, the more you give of yourself at the core of who you are. Because you are your body. That's the real you. Which, to step back, now, we struggle with the biblical prohibitions on sexuality of sexuality and sex for marriage. And we have a hard time understanding that. In part, it's because we don't actually have this biblical view of the body. We don't actually think the body is the center of who we are. So what I do with my body, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, to sleep with whoever, that doesn't really, it doesn't make a difference, right? I mean, but the Bible says that only the covenantal context of marriage is the safest place that you can bear the essence of who you are. And to to think otherwise is delusional, because the inner sanctum of our life, we share in the sex act. But the second point I want to make is this, is that love requires a body. Love requires a body. Physical presence matters. Those of you who have been in long-distance relationships romantically know that it's very hard to be away from the person you love, or wanting to move into a relationship love requires a body presence matters touch matters and you know you think about our culture of virtual reality where we want to live outside our bodies or you know the illusion the the illusion of friends on like facebook or wherever that somehow we're connecting with the world we're actually having real relationships when they're actually not physical when they're not embodied relationships see there's an emptiness to that I mean, not, I'm not saying it's bad, but actually the most effective sort of usage of social media is actually with the community that you have embodied life with. The idea that somehow you can simulate love and relationships without a body is its, it's an illusion. It's an illusion. Just type into your search browser um, the healing power of touch Sometime. And you'll find scientific articles that come up that talk about the power of touch to communicate and to heal and to engage. My, uh, my friend, who's a pastor in, in uh, Vancouver at a Christian Reformed church, is also teaching a series on the body, um, more f- focused just on the body, and he shared this wonderful story about a, a woman named Edith, and it's from, I think, an author named Philip Pullman, about this woman, Edith, who... Older woman, and her health is going downhill. She lives alone. She doesn't have any family, Um, and somehow this she sits on her front porch alone, and that there's this little boy that sees her, and uh, comes, and he just comes and he sits on her lap. (laughs) Just over the time, over weeks, and and that this simple act of this little boy sitting on her lap, laying on her lap, rejuvenates this woman just brings new life to her. Why? Because of just touch. She probably hasn't been touched. A lot of people go many, many weeks and months without being touched. And it is actually devastating, psychologically, not to be touched. Physical presence matters, friends. The body matters. It sits to the core of who we are. And when you think about the Christian faith, and we're going to, when we move into Advent, think about this, this line from, from the Gospel of John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incredibleness of the incarnation, of this God in a sense, who is totally other, who is removed, takes on the body, the limitations of a body, to be present. (laughs) Because love requires a body. And God himself takes a body in order for us to experience his love. This is the center of the Christian faith, friends. And it's a glorious, glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, teach us what it means that our bodies belong to you, that you you have redeemed our bodies. Help us to understand um, how to glorify you with them. And to know, God, and have the hope of resurrection in our lives, that you will, you will someday heal our bodies, cleanse them, and bring them into full relationship with you. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.